that happened. Um, so <laughs> Romans chapter 8. Um, I would like to say that we would uh, finish all the references to the Spirit here in Romans 8 this morning. Um, yep, I'm going to like saying that. We'll see what happens. Um, when, when we come to this point in the book of Romans, it really, it really stands to us to assess the Christian life and wonder how in the world does such a thing act and interact, right? We just came off of this entire chapter that talked about um, not the evil of the law, but the weakness of the law to bring about the life of God. There's, there's nothing that the law can tell to a sinful person to make them godlike. Nothing. It can, it can instruct all day long. Do this, don't do this. Do this, don't do this. And it can be completely right. Those are the things that God does and does not do. But what happens in the application of the law is that it reveals our weakness and the law's weakness to actually pull such righteousness out of us because there is no such righteousness inside of us. And so what Paul is saying is the righteousness of God is actually revealed in the gospel and in the person of Christ, and it's not in us, it's in him. And so it is at salvation that this great transfer takes place that he speaks of in chapter 5, where he says, now, having been justified, we have peace with God. What does that life of peace with God look like? It's not one where we uh, come and just all we do is remind each other of what to do, this is what to do, this is what not to do. That's not how the gospel works. Because again, the law, though it promises life, do this and you will live, it proves to be death to us, doesn't it? Even as Christians, if our entire hope is centered on how well we behave this week or that, how, how good is it? How much hope do we have? I mean, let, let's just think for a second. If salvation was predicated on the best month you have ever had since salvation, how well would you fare? Once we understand holiness, the answer is not well at all. Even, even at my best times. Okay, let's take it to a week. <laughs> best week you ever had as a Christian. You know, put up whatever list. This is what I did, this is what I avoided, whatever the case may be. Yeah. Oh, by far. Yeah, I mean, it's light years compared to living next door. Right? We don't like to think that way. This, this is why the, the transaction of the gospel cannot be spoken of in high enough terms. Because what Christ has done in gifting us his righteousness is not just filling in some of the corners, as hobbits say when they uh, eat a second meal, it's not filling in some of the corners of our needed righteousness. It is a full replacement. Not only do our sins go to the cross, but so do our filthy righteousnesses, as Isaiah puts them. Everything of us goes to the cross because everything of us deserved the cross. And everything that was his, his life, his righteousness, comes to us. None of that is owed to us. It is fully owed to him. And so when we read passages like the opening of chapter 8, verse 1, which is where we start this morning, where after an entire passage talking about what a wretched person he is, because even, even as a saved individual, looking at the law of God, he desires to do what is right, but he finds in his members, he uses terms for his hands and feet and eyes and stuff, he finds a whole other law at work. He's like, I, I want to do what's right, but... Within me, I do not find the ability to do it. That doesn't mean we don't have the ability to do good things. Christians can do good things. 
But he says, what pales that is the significant amount of failure that I see now because I know what the righteousness of Christ is like. The longer I live as a Christian, the more sin I see in my heart. Sin that I ignored before. Desires that I thought were fine, and then it turns out they, I don't want them at all anymore. Other things that crop up, some more like Christ, some less like Christ. You share this experience? We disappoint ourselves. We desire good things most of the time. We desire bad things some of the time. It is simply astounding to hear the promise of chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why not? I see Christians condemning each other left and right and center. Isn't that how we make people better? Isn't it? Or is it not? Or can we actually make each other better? And if our good works are only done to be seen by man, I think Jesus has something to say about that. So it's not about the actions, is it? It's not about what the flesh can do. Watch what he says. He says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he gives us the reason. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now what's the law of sin and death? It's the one that put us to death. While the law promised life for us, it proves to be death to us. He had just said this in the previous passage. But what does Christ say? He doesn't come up and say, do this, do this, and you will live. Do this, and you will live. Don't do this, and you will live. No. Trust in him to have done it all already, and you will live. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will live. That's what he says. That's not a work. That's just an action in time where he expresses to us the significance of what Christ has done is to the accomplishment of all the law. And how is this applied to us? But through the spirit of life. Now that makes perfect sense. We've been all through scripture looking at the nature of the spirit. What is its primary objective? What is his primary role? He's the life giver. And so the life himself, Christ, has come into the world. Who do you think is going to be the one applying Christ all around the world? It's going to be the Spirit of God. It is his role. And here he speaks of what the Spirit of life has done. Verse 3. For God has done... By the way, that is a full-on testament to the Spirit of life is God himself. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why did he do this? Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, he's going to explain us who that is for a second there. If we were a false religion, we would look like every other religion in the world. Here's the rules, do them, God will be pleased. Or maybe just ignore the failures. Just a possible ignoring of the failures is Islam. Do all that you can and maybe God will be merciful. That's, there is no hope in Islam. Now, they will write that directly. Mormonism. 
What is it based on? How did God become God? Anyone know? In Mormonism? Yep. Let me quote Joseph Smith for a second. God was once a man, as we all are, and through obedience to law became God. We too, through obedience to law, may one day become God. That is the base of all Mormon theology. Okay? Every false religion in the world, from Buddhism to Hinduism, teaches that you can rise to heaven, nirvana, good relationship with God, or whatever, through self-actualization, self-righteousness, or self-accomplishment, whatever it is, pull yourself up. Accept Christianity. Even modern Judaism is given to that. Christianity comes in and says, you can't. And Christ has. Even ancient Old Testament saints understood we can't. We trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding, lean not on anything that is ours, and he directs our paths. Did they see it clearly? No. They saw Christ from a very far distance. Do we see it clearly? No. The salvation that belongs to us is so much grander and so much higher and so much greater than we can appreciate even now. That's why Peter speaks of it as a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Something we haven't fully seen yet. We understand a piece of it, though. And that piece of it is consistent with every saint from Adam forward. We can't trust ourselves to present ourselves faultless before the throne of grace, but we can trust Christ to do that. God has done, verse 3 says, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, could never do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Those who say that Christ came and abolished the law do not understand what happened at the cross. He did not abolish the law. He did not do away with it. He fulfilled it, brought it to its full completion. Its entire purpose was to point the world to Christ. It's exactly what the spirit of life is doing as well. He says, well then, how do we live in the midst of knowing that as Christians, that that's what the Spirit of Christ is doing, that that's what the Spirit of the Lord is doing? Well, watch what he says. That the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, we know well how to walk according to the flesh. In, in a, that's not just shorthand for sinfulness. That is us, our contribution to life, good and bad. And other Christians' uh, accomplishments towards our lives. Accountability partners. This is walking according to the flesh. You and I both know that if you just, if your one main thing that stands between you and sin is an accountability partner that you have to be honest with, how successful is that going to be? Well, you're just going to add sin on sin, aren't you? You're going to do something wrong and then you're going to lie to somebody. Now we've doubled it. Because the flesh. Just humans can't do this. Even if they bond together, we can't do it. Even if we create entire churches built on the predicate that we can make one another righteous by holding one another accountable and just teaching law, we will make a false religion out of Christianity. What does he say here? The flesh can't do these things. It can't. What fulfills the law is not us. 
It's fulfilled in us. Walk not according to the flesh, but instead according to the Spirit. Boy, that is a whole nother thing, isn't it? It would stand for us to question then, what does it mean to walk according to the Spirit? Those who live according to the flesh, you'll define it, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Sinful, good, pride, whatever, it will all be in accordance with the accomplishment of man. And where will it get you? Death. We're not life givers. This is why the way we evangelize should be to point people to Christ, not to say, hey, you should come to church. Church ain't going to save you. Church ain't going to do it. That's not evangelism. Christ is. Point them to Christ. If they need more clarification, they're welcome to come and attend and hear about Christ. That is what we will point them to. It will not be, here's our list of rules. Here's our list of do's and don'ts. Here's what, what holidays you can worship on. Here's what things you can eat or drink. Here, none of that. That will just spawn more and more false Christians. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And then he pulls no punches here, verse 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Peace with who? Not just between you and me. Peace between us and God, and then by extension, peace with other believers. Our primary way to interact with one another is through Christ. It is not directly to one another. Think about that for a second. If our primary way of interacting with one another is just on the human level, we will immediately find what we have in common and condemn other Christians who don't have that in common. It'll be what happens, isn't it? And we will walk together hand in hand according to the flesh. And we'll say, in order to follow Christ, you need to be like us. You know how I know that? Because we're like us, and we're both Christians, and everything's fine with us. Believe it or not, Christians are very, very different from one another. It's one of the things I say in church history all the time. If you are looking through the church's history, or you're looking around the world to find people that remind you of you, you're doing church wrong. Christians are very different from one another, and that is not a bug, it is a feature, so that we do not lose sight of what we hold in common, that is Christ. To set the mind on the flesh in such a way is death. To set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Why? He gives us the reason why this fails every time. For to set the mind, uh, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, and it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So anytime you have people who are claiming to follow God, and the whole way, when you ask them how they are following God, what is it that you're doing? And their expression isn't something along the lines of, I suffer for Christ and he never leaves me. Not only that, I pick up my cross daily. Not just to die at one point, but to die daily to myself, to my own selfish hopes, my own pride, lay it aside. And if Christ takes me places I don't want to go, while there's resistance that's still with me, there is a joy and a peace that comes from living side by side with them that I don't know anywhere else. It 
He says, if you really want to submit to God's law, you're never going to do it according to the flesh. It's not going to work. Indeed, it can't. The flesh is incapable of submitting to the law of God. Incapable. And so what happens? What happens in false churches like this or false Christianities? We lessen the commandments to a place where they can be attainable. Don't we? Rather than saying you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, at every point, every place in the day, and love your neighbor just as much as you love yourself and care for yourself and think of yourself and in humility of mind treat each other more significant than yourself, instead of saying that, we go, well, there's like a list of six things. Go to church. You know, give a tithe. Uh, don't drink. Uh, don't, don't fraternize with other things. Don't do any sexual sins. And yeah, you should be good. That's lowering the law of God to a place where it can be attainable by people. Not only is the law not attainable by people, what does Jesus say about that? He warns, it's one of the first things he warns about in the book of Matthew, where he condemns those who would relax even the least of his commandments. What does this have all to do with the Spirit of God? Because while the flesh cannot submit to God's law, and as he says in verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, he then turns the whole thing around and speaks to a true church. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. In other words... There is nobody outside of Christ that can do the law of God, and there's nobody in Christ that can't. He makes just the harshest of distinctions there. Not only can people in the flesh not do the law of God, they're not capable of submitting to it, they don't have the capacity or the ability. Those who are in Christ, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, and there he puts it on the individual level and on the corporate if in the fact the Spirit of Christ does belong in you, he says in verse 10, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Let's talk about that for a second. The body is dead because of sin. Here he is speaking to authentic believers possessed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Your body is dead because of sin. And he calls you right back to verse 1. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Why? Not because they didn't do anything wrong, but because they are in Christ. Right? And so what are we to make of Christians who boast in how well-behaved they are? That is no sign of maturity. I have met many Christians who when they speak of righteousness, all they can do is talk about how well-behaved they are. Many, 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 many. You have a question, Ann? Correct. Correct. Assuming that you have actually risen to the level. In fact, there are people in church history and in the present age who teach what's called Christian perfectionism. That we can actually attain in sanctification, a place in this life where we no longer sin. That is a sign of grave immaturity. 
or unbelief entirely. The whole predicate of salvation and sanctification is a reliance upon God for these things, not on ourselves. And to think that the height of maturity is to finally get to the place where, as you say, we have basically risen to Godhood, is to miss the gospel entirely. And it's why he's putting such harsh terms to this. Even as Christians, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And that righteousness wasn't accomplished by you. That is Christ's righteousness. And that is what brings the spirit life. And here it's capital S. The spirit brings this righteousness and this life into you. It's an alien righteousness is actually the theological term. It's something from outside of you. It is a gift. It is not something you accomplished. He says, you want to know how powerful the spirit of life is? Verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. You want to talk about something powerful. Speak of the Holy Spirit being capable of raising Jesus, God himself, from the dead. You think he can't raise you too? What does he say? If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is one of the primary ways that the Holy Spirit interacts with the believer. We've seen many places where he has interacted with believers, where he has interacted with miraculous, where he's interacted with Jesus. Here is one of the primary ways he interacts with Christians. He gives life to our mortal bodies. Here he doesn't even speak of it in the flesh terms. He speaks of it in death terms. These bodies that are given to death because of their failings, because of their sin, because of how we were born into it, because of original sin, because of all sorts of things, general sinfulness, specific sinfulness, confessed, unconfessed, intentional, unintentional, so many sins everywhere. The spirit of life is capable of bringing life even to our mortal bodies, which means, Christian, where did your good works come from? You or the spirit of life? Doesn't it remove all boasting from us entirely? Or as Paul says in another place, but for the grace of God, there go I. What does he mean? He means there is nothing good that dwells in me save what God has done. I know my contribution. Now, and a lot of Christians will talk about this and they'll limit it to salvation. My contribution to salvation is the sin to be forgiven. Yes, understand. What do you think your contribution to your Christian life is? Has it fully changed? Who actually ordained the good works for you to do at all and then brings them to pass? Who is able to present you faultless before the throne of grace? Who works in you that which is pleasing in his sight? How many places can the scriptures say this? He is able even to give life to mortal bodies, which means even in this life, it is not just that we have a future hope and we live in sin however much we want. Now, there's all sorts of false teachers teaching that, of taking the grace of God and using it as an excuse and a license to sin anywhere, any which way. No, 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 no. That's not how the gospel works. The gospel works in saying, yes, confess sin. Yes, repent of sin. But in the fullest expression, 
to give full credit to God for whatever good is in my life is owed to him. Well, what are we to do when we fail? What are we to do when we sin? Excuse it? Just say, well, I mean, you know, I'm just human. I think lightly of it? Or to think significantly of it and to thank God that even with who you still are, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So many times we are given to false ways of thinking and that God's happiness with his children is based on how well behaved they are rather than in Christ. God has never been more pleased with you than the moment that you were saved and washed in the blood of Christ. You do not just keep on doing things to make God happy. That's not the, that's not the economy we have. God works things into you so that you are more delighted in him. It's the other way around. The Westminster Confession of Faith, perhaps one of the, uh, one of the most fantastic pieces of theology ever written, begins with a single question. What is the chief end of man? What's his purpose? Glorify God. That's not the whole statement. That's the first half. And? <laughs> to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The enjoyment of this relationship, the lack of the joy in the relationship is not on God's side. It's on ours. Because we don't understand it enough, we do not appreciate it enough, because we can't see it enough. And every time we confess our sins, every time we repent of another sin, that is welcoming the joy of the Lord into our life. His joy about us. Not because he was lacking anything, but because he delights in the saving of his people. Hebrews chapter 12 actually refers to this, that Jesus endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. It's the church. It was worth it. Not because we were so great, but because he loved us so much. He says, so then, brothers. Verse 12. We are debtors. That is our primary interaction in this transaction. We did not purchase salvation. We did not find it and accomplish it. We did not discover it. We are debtors. Not to live to the flesh, according to, uh, to live according to the flesh. No, 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 no. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. You try to fix sin on your own? The law kills those who try that. It's, it's judicial and it's justice knows no limit and it knows no forgetfulness. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, here where he talks about how the Spirit actually works in the Christian's life to interact with sin on that Christian's behalf. Watch this. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Putting no confidence in the flesh, he says in Philippians 3. Here he expressed the very same thing. We cannot look at the Christian life and say, I got that. I can live that. If you look at the Christian life and you go, oh, I can accomplish all of that. I don't, what do I even need the Spirit of God for? God has his Spirit indwelling his church. That significant of a change in church's history is not just to make our path a little easier. It's to make it possible at all. We can't live the Christian life on our own. 
In fact, he has not only expressed that the Spirit of God dwelling in us is necessary for that, but it needs to be expressed in the uh, communion of saints. We actually need one another as well. It's not just you under a tree somewhere reading your Bible. You need one another. We all need one another. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, capital S, again, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You say, well, what if this sin or that sin? Is that going to take away all this? There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It does not in any way give us license to sin, but it certainly does give us promise of assurance when we live according to the flesh. He says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit, capital S, of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I promise you this. If you devote yourself to a sin in your life or excuse away the need to confess sins or to repent of sins, you will be plagued by a lack of assurance of salvation your entire life. Because the same Spirit who brings life to your mortal bodies is the same one who gives you assurance that you are the children of God. I have seen it happen time without measure. My own life and others' lives. Say, so, you know, I, I, I lack any assurance that God has saved me. Where is the sin in your life that you're excusing? Where are you trying to say it's understandable or it makes sense or it's not really that bad? Where are you focused on the flesh rather than the Spirit of God? Where is it that you're making excuses for yourself? Because I promise you, making excuses for yourself, the primary sign that shows up is a complete lack of any familiarity or assurance of salvation whatsoever. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 1 says, we have been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. And there he refers to scripture and fellowship and the spirit of life. He refers to all of these things. And he says, therefore, we add to our faith virtue and knowledge and self-control and all of these things, this whole list. And he says, look, for those of you who are not giving diligence to these things, it is possible to actually get into a place as a Christian that has fully forgotten that you were cleansed from your former sins. It's the argument of 2 Peter 1. What a terrifying place to be. To belong to God and not even know it. Because you would rather live and excuse yourself in the flesh than to live according to the Spirit. To disconnect from the very life-giving assurance that is ours in Christ because the Spirit of God has gifted this to us so that we can protect our favorite sins and prides and self. Sure. Belonging to God and not knowing. Yes. Second Peter 1. Go ahead and turn there.
Uh, let's start in verse 3. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Ah, just a wonderful verse. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That's the new life that he works in us. It's not something that comes from us, it comes from divine nature, right? Having escaped the, from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, there speaks of the nature of sanctification as the Spirit of God brings it about. If these are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever, watch this, lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. It is actually possible for a Christian to devote themselves to solving their own sinful problems so much that they lose sight of salvation entirely while being in a cleansed state. It is, it is simply a remarkable thing that Peter describes here because it gives us not only a good reason to follow the Lord, but it also gives us full recognition of where any of this comes from at all and eliminates every boastfulness that we have. I am this because, boy, I've been, I've been uh, training myself. I've been reading the Bible every day. My maturity is so great. My righteousness is so high. And Peter comes back and goes, you've lost full sight of the gospel. We are partakers in a divine nature, not a well-trained human nature. Partakers in a God nature. That God is actually working this stuff in us. And once you lose sight of that, you're going to lose sight of your salvation. Because, again, who worked salvation in you? This is where theology is so important. Because if we think that God was sitting there trying to convince us to be saved and just so flustered that it took so long and then we finally came and go, you know, sell yourself to me. Make sure this uh, matches my level of uh, desire and what I really want to follow. If we think salvation acted like that, then yeah, we will live the Christian life as if it depends on us too. But salvation doesn't depend on us like that. Salvation expresses that Christ came from heaven as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep and his sheep know his voice and they come to him. And there's not a single one that the father gives him that he loses because he is a good shepherd. Good shepherds don't lose sheep. They go and they find the flock and he says, even hypothetically, if one was missing, I would turn over heaven and earth to find it. That's exactly what he did. And so if, if our concept of salvation is that it depended on us following God, we will be wrong from the very beginning and think of our Christian life from the same perspective, thinking that somehow this Christian life that we live is owed to us, our maturity, and our good actions. He says that's not the case at all. In fact, that's the exact opposite of Christian maturity. Christian maturity is very similar to salvation. Trust in the Lord. He will direct your paths. Let me put it in the way the psalmist puts it. Delight yourself in the Lord, 
and he will give you right desires in your heart. Trust also in him. He will bring about your righteousness as the noonday. That's Psalm 34. Let me put it the way Paul chews out the churches in Galatia. Are you so stupid as to think that which began by the Spirit continues by works of the flesh? Really? You think that once you're saved, now I got this? No, 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 no. The life that is in us is only done by a divine nature. You don't have it. Neither do I. Neither does anyone. Which is why putting anyone, pastor, priest, pope, anyone on any pedestal, thinking that they have that divine nature intrinsic to them rather than gifted to them, if at all, is a complete breakdown in worship. It's the one aspect of holiness. is not just that God is high. It is not just that he is perfect. It is that he is separated, distinguished, and distinct from creation. That is, that is the great question of divide here. If something or someone is on the creator side of the line between creator and creation, they are to be worshipped. This is one of the great issues at the Council of Nicaea, for instance, if you're curious, of Arianism. It believed that Jesus was the highest thing created by the Father. So Jesus was fully on the creation side of things. With that logic, you should not worship Christ. Because we want to be partakers in divine nature, the one who created heaven and earth. And if that is relegated only to the Father, then we got nothing. Not even with the Spirit of God dwelling in us. How much little or less do you think you can do in the mirror to encourage yourself to just do right things all the time? And then take credit for that when things go well and, oh, kind of excuse it when things don't go well, which is usually how that happens. Rather, we take credit for when things go erroneous. Why? Because we know where that came from. And we give credit to God when he works in us that which pleases him. Beware those who sing their own praises and their own maturity. Let me give you a passage from the Gospels. Hang on a second. It is in Luke, and I have to find the exact thing. Chapter 17. Yep. I thought it was 18. I had to make sure. You want to know the nature of following God and this relationship that we have with him. A lot of people look at the Christian life as though uh, God really needs us to do good things so that he will be happy um, and then all things will be well. That relationship is not how this works. And Jesus makes it really, really clear here. Uh, and here he speaks to those who follow him and making sure that there is a full understanding of the distinction between God and creature. Uh, by the way, uh, in case there's any misunderstandings, we're all on the creature side of that. And Jesus makes it really clear. He says, will any one of you who has a servant or a slave plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, oh, come at once and recline at the table. Sorry, I'm sorry. Luke 17, verse 7 is where I'm starting. 
Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly? Don't apply that straight up to dressing. Just stick with the analogy. And serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Now, here's, here's an important understanding. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, and here's the attitude of a Christian, we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. This is from the very lips of Christ, expressing to his disciples the attitude of following God. We do not come up to God and go, here is all that I accomplished this week. Doesn't that make you happy? No. We are not trying to fix God's emotions. It doesn't work like that. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We want to know what made him happy already. He already stated it. Go back to the first place that the Spirit of God shows up in the ministry of Jesus Christ. It was at his baptism. What did he say makes him happy? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He says the same thing on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son. He says it to uh, the three disciples who are there, Peter, James, and John. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Hear him. The same terminology that, that, that exudes the listening that takes into heart and changes our lives. Why? Because he is expressing to us the nature of even following him. What does it look like? We do not come to the Lord and go, here is all the stuff that I have done. You're very lucky to have me. I cannot tell you the amount of Christians I have seen that interact with God on that same measure. Better be happy I came here to church. It was difficult. I made God happy. Turn it around. Why is God already happy with his children? It is not because they plowed the field well, and it is not because they, what was the other thing he says here in this? Prepared supper well, or or kept sheep well, or any of these things. No. We are still unworthy slaves, if it was up to us. And only because of Christ, there is no condemnation. That's the part that I think a lot of people miss about the opening to chapter 8 in the book of Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation. Everyone's like, yay, to those who are in Christ Jesus. It is not no condemnation because God is going, you know, I'm going to take a holiday from my law. No, it is fulfilled on your behalf because you are in Christ Jesus. That is the ultimate question. And notice how we make it backwards. Did you invite Christ into your heart? How about this? Are you in Christ? That's how the scriptures actually put it. Because if you are in Christ, the Spirit of God makes your mortal flesh even walk again. So how can a corpse walk? Resurrection. That is what is required every time a Christian is to do a good work. God is bringing from death to life in our mortal bodies. This gives us one of the greatest aspects of why we confess our sins. Why? So that we do not lose sight of who God is 
and who we are. Elsewise, and confession literally just means to agree. God has already declared the sins of our lives. This confession is just us agreeing with him. Repenting is not, I will try better next time. Repenting is turning from excuse of sin and confidence in self to Christ. John Calvin, a pastor of the 16th century, expressed the reality that the Christian life is one of repentance. That is our constant turning to Christ because everything in this world, good and bad, vies for our focus. And instead, we are to focus on Christ without compromise and without end. Even if we worked for God our entire life, Jesus says, here in this life, we are still unworthy servants. That is the primary way in which we act with God. Thanking him, agreeing with him, trusting him, following him. That's why all of those references to the Christian life are expressed in terms like this. And it is the Spirit of God who, in the midst of that, as he says, uh, you can go back to Romans 8. We're going to finish right here. In the midst of all of that perspective, He phases us with this reality that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, not because of what we have accomplished, but because of what Christ accomplished. Look at verse 17. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him, our path will look a lot like his if he's directing it. His path was perfect, ours is imperfect, but it'll look a lot more like his. The world hated me, what do you think it's going to do with you? They persecuted me, what do you think it's going to do with you? And so he moves on to this discussion, Paul does, and say, for I consider, and then he opens this up. You say, well, what's what's the benefit of living in Christ? Well, okay, there's no condemnation, but you're telling me that that road just leads to a great deal of suffering. Yeah! Welcome to the life of Christ. Verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation itself waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. And here he speaks of the heavens, the earth, and all that dwells in them. Not willing, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, what we are starting to enjoy here one day, the creation itself from the dirt to the tops of the trees to the stars themselves will experience the resurrection that God brings to his world. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth even until now. Verse 23. And not only the creation, we find ourselves agreeing with creation. It says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, namely the redemption of our bodies. Our lives as Christians now is a testament that God will one day raise us from the dead. He is bringing life in these bodies that are dying. Those are the good works of the Christian. The first fruits of the Spirit. We eagerly await the full redemption of our bodies, but here in this life, at this current moment, every good work God does through us is a testament 
of the promise that he has made to raise these bodies from the dead. He's not finished with the physical. And in fact, he never will be. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. A hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he has sees. In other words, if you think you have all of everything figured out, Christian perfectionisms, if you think you've got all your sins taken care of and everything's good, that's the only testament that you've lost full sight of the holiness of God. Because what does he say? We have hope. But if you think that you have already received everything in which you hope, you're not hoping anymore. This is the best that it'll ever be. If we hope for what we do not see, what is the effect? We will wait for it with patience. That's how we primarily interact with our sufferings. And what should bubble up to your consciousness right then is how unfit for that job are we? And so what does he give us? One of the secondary ways that the Spirit interacts with the church. Verse 26. Just like this. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Notice he doesn't say the Spirit helps us when we are weak. It says we are in weakness. And so the Spirit helps us. We don't even know what to pray for. We don't even know how to talk to God. We don't know what requests to make. We don't know what things that ought to come to pass. Aren't you glad in your Christian life that you did not receive a yes to every prayer you've ever prayed? I am. I have prayed for some outlandish things in my day. Things that I would know I would fully regret had I received them. It is not that the Spirit helps us when we are weak, which I have heard people try to quote this verse using that terminology. No, the Spirit of God helps us in our weakness. We are weak at all points, everywhere. And so the Spirit is with us. Why? We don't even know what to pray for. And so the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings that are too deep for words. If you think that you accomplished everything with your prayers, again, He doesn't say he helps us when we don't know what to pray for. He says he helps us because we don't know what to pray for and because we are weak, both in mind, in body, and in spirit. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, now he connects it all with how did salvation even start and how will it end? Well, look look in vain for the accomplishments of man in here. Watch this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Notice the resurrection language. Notice the focus on Christ. He's the one that it started with and then it trickles down to us. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Before the world, after the world, a work of God. How quick are we to put ourselves back in the driver's seat, either of salvation 
or of the Christian life. And Paul will come in here and just slap us over the head and say, only the Spirit of God can do the things you are claiming you're capable of. And the only reason you have the Spirit of God is because you were in Christ. And the only reason you were in Christ is because the Father set his heart on you before the world was. And he will not take his heart from you. You are in Christ. He does not lose his sheep. And you will certainly be glorified and see the resurrection even of the smallest atom in the universe. That's the application of the passage. And that's why he ends up saying, just with this astounding reality of what the Spirit of God is doing in the midst of his people, he, uh, look at this rhetorical question, verse 31. What, what shall we say to these things? Here's what we should say. If God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, truly, what's the worst they can do? Jesus said the same thing. Don't, don't, don't fear those who can harm the body. That's the worst thing they can do is kill you. How about you fear him who can destroy both body and soul? How about you, how about you set your mind on the proper things here? And he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us, here he refers back to creation, all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. God set his mind on his people before he created the world. Do you really think there's anyone in this world that can bring condemnation to those who have been justified by the one who created the world? No. Who is to condemn? In fact, there is a proper way to uh, translate that in verse 34. Who is left to condemn? There's just nothing left. All of creation is under his rule. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God and who indeed is interceding for us. If God is for us, why are you fretting? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And here he gives a remarkably terrible group of sufferings that Christians go through. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, here is a saint speaking to the Lord. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, look at how broad this list is, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things in the future, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else, look how broad, in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you come to the end of Romans 8 and you go, I got the Christian life figured out. I can do it. I just need to get the right rules. Make sure I don't play pool too much or I, uh, I you know, don't get too angry and I just kind of fix this problem and that and sometimes I worry too much and I'll, I'll just fix all of this stuff. You missed the whole point. The whole point is we look to Christ. We depend on his spirit to bring life actions from these dead bodies because he will do that in the future and it's a down payment to part of the promise that he's going to do it not only to our bodies, but all creation.
that will bring us to the same place we came at salvation. We depend on Christ for salvation. What about sanctification? We depend on God for our sanctification too. He will present us faultless. He will work in us that which is pleasing in our sight. You say, I hate this sin. I hate that sin. I want to defeat it. How can I do that? You know, one of the most helpful prayers I have ever prayed in my Christian walk, God, give me new desires. Because I have not a problem just with action. I have a problem with wanting this sinful area. It makes me feel safe when I worry about this stuff rather than cast my anxieties on you. It makes me feel fulfilled when I do this or do that. It makes me feel vindicated when I act out and lash out in anger. Give me a desire to do and to act in accordance with Christ. And let me never forget where it came from. Any questions? We actually did the whole chapter 8. I don't believe it. Uh, It is a monster of a chapter. Thank you for your patience. Any questions or points of clarity or even observations that you think I missed? I'm certain they're in there. All right. Yes, ma'am. When we feel we are given something to do, like I do the eye count, the feeling of giving the blood the eye count, um, I'm giving, I do believe that Christ gave me that. Mm -hmm. But it isn't just, I don't feel it's justification uh, for deeds. I just feel that it's sort of time that it's filling time but it's doing something that is pleasing and because it's helping other people. Thank him for giving you that desire. Absolutely. Thank him for giving you the desire. And here's the thing. Don't even enslave yourself to the desire. There may come a day where he gives you a different desire. Perfectly fine. Right? It, it, it happens all the time in the Christian life. We are meant to go here for a while and here for a while and there for a while. Um, one, of the, one of the pitfalls I think Christians fall into is they go, I know God gave me this desire, and so I will always pursue this at all points, and I'll ignore anything else that comes along. Always stay open for differences. Um, because even as we grow, no matter how long we've been a Christian, new desires will crop up as God directs his church to accomplish his purposes in this world. So what, what you are doing is neither wrong nor commanded. It is a desire given to you by God. Do it. And if in good conscience you can't not do it, then you must do it. Right? To go against conscience. Here I'll quote Luther. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. If it is in your conscience to do so, do it. And thank God for giving you a desire. Absolutely. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this day. We are thankful for your word. It, it constantly comes in and realigns our hearts and takes our pride and kicks it to the curb and says, let's our boast only be in the Lord rather than in anything that we have done or accomplished. We pray that as the years go on, we become more acutely aware of your giftings in our life and put no confidence in the flesh, even as your word says, but put all confidence in Christ, in his righteousness, in the grace of you even to now. We thank you, Father, that we are always in a state of need and find in you grace and mercy. We thank you that we are always weak and find in you our intercessor. We pray for these things this day in your Son's name. Amen.